from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Daniel Boyarin of the Rhetoric and Near Eastern Studies departments discussing his book, Judaism, The Genealogy of a Modern Notion. He is joined by Niklaus Largier of the Comparative Literature and German departments. So we didn't uh, really coordinate this, I guess, as it is appropriate for a chat. Um, and then Daniel just told me, I think I'm going to tell you, to first speak a little bit about the book and the project. And I said, no, I read it and I took careful notes. And so I don't want this to go to waste at this point. So, so I'll start with what I understood in the book. As, and as not surprisingly as we are used to, I would want to say with Daniel, it is a provocative book. And maybe in the most unlikely way, it is a provocative book uh, in its defense and engagement with philology in, the, in a very prominent way. And if the, the way it made philology, philology strong. It's also a book that in, at moments actually reminded me in its I don't want to say polemic tone, but in its engage, tone of engagement of a type of scholarship that I was more familiar with in the German tradition of like German historians, philologists, and theologians of the 19th century. When you read these texts, you're usually reminded of the fact how rough they deal with each other, which is not the case in here, but a certain uh, decidedness, I would say, of the argument <laughs> along this philological line is really, I think, a great virtue of this book and reminding of a certain type of scholarship. Now, the, the, the core idea, as, I, as you pronounce it uh, in, in the introduction, I think already, is really that Judaism is not, as you say, it's not a, Jew, a Jewish term. That is, it's not used as a word or as a concept in any, as you say, in any Jewish language before modernity. And the, the book does work along these lines, kind of identifying, and I'm trying just to point to a couple of what I saw as the main argumentative structures, uh, as I mean, emphasizing and demonstrating that Judaismos, in its Greek form, is a production of early Christianity on one side. So that's one of the backgrounds. And it's a, a, a term coined, as you emphasize, in order to create and police, I think that's the word, word you use, the boundaries of Christianosmos, yeah, so of Christianity at that point. And then on the other side, Judaism turns out to be, and that's where we shift into modernity, or let's say the time since the Reformation, and as you argue also in a, again, philologically precise and the extensive analysis of the Yiddish Yahadut. I don't know whether I pronounced that correctly. Yandus. Yeah, <laughs> that, that in these terms, they, the way they're used, we actually find a kalk, you call it, on Judentum, yeah, the German uh, coinage. And that 
in these terms, yeah, Judentum, Judaism, we find a reframing of Jewish forms of life, and I'll come back to this term, uh, as a modern concept and as a concept that now turns into religion. Yeah? This is kind of the third important uh, part. So the first line of argument, I think, is thoroughly philological, uh, even, as I said, an engaged votum for the value of philology and philological work. And there are, uh, especially at the, in the last sentence, can, for me, very, uh, very deep resonances also with a kind of an Auerbachian humanism, I would say, which actually, for me, resonated more at that point with Edward Said than with Talal Assad, who plays an important role in this book also in the conceptualization of what religion is. Now, the second line, so the first line of argument, I would say, is this philological research and uh, work in detail uh, on the level of words and how they're used. And that's also where an authority comes into play, Wittgenstein, as somebody who does for you, who has an important uh, function here. The second line of thought or argument is the conceptual one uh, that can, leads towards the question of what does the modern form of religion, you know, this abstract term, actually do, and what is the, what this is based on? And there again, you can you return to a philological analysis first, which for me was really fascinating. I, I found that to read how uh, Judaismos, as it, as it is used in in late antiquity refers essentially to practices and activities. It's a way of, I mean, you also reformulate within a different context and, and definitely amplifying it and, and changing it also a little bit, the Talal al-Saudian ar argument there. So uh, that's the, uh, and that the fascinating parts about the, the way in which uh, Torah, for example, and Nomos come together there. I found that, I, mean, I can't go into detail here, and I don't want to talk too much. And then uh, the way, then you demonstrate how in the, especially fifth century, roughly one could say, Christianity in producing its own orthodoxy can shapes that term or reshapes that term and produces it as a doxa, so to speak, or produces two two doxai, namely a Christian one and a Jewish one. And there, I mean, for my, again, it resonated with my, you know, my obsession with Auerbach at the Figura essay, it, 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 with, with, where you portray Ignatius as kind of a, a Scharnierstelle, one would say in Germany, kind of a, 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 what do you call it, cornerstone or a moment in that history. What is particularly fascinating is that at that point, uh, Kind of exegetical positions are being produced polemically against each other from within Christianity. And one is the Gnostic one. You don't go into detail so much, but Marcion comes up there. And one is the Jewish one. And then there is the Christian Orthodox one. And that I found, I mean, this is a really wonderful uh, part of the book, which as a whole book is really fascinating uh, to read, I, I found. Uh, where this uh, this comes so clearly out, and for me that was 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 
was very new and, and, and it leads then to kind of a Christian invention of another ecclesia, which is called synagogue in, in, the, in that, uh, that tradition as these uh, two moments. And my question there is, yes, yeah, so where, uh, also for you or for a conversation, uh, where doxa so the, the, turns into religion or where does religion yeah. start there? And, and the key moment is, seems to be yeah, where the, the, the set of practices and as you call it, kind of the form of life that is at stake turns into what we would call belief. And I don't want to, if we call it that, it may be a little bit too, mm. too simplistic. Now, let me just focus, focus on, on one third. I mean, there's a, a third line of argument and I, I said uh, kind of with the emphasis on philology already something about it. And it's the, the way you reframe the question about these issues. And that is with the help of Wittgenstein in part, or the help just in a dialogue with Wittgenstein and his notion of the use of words, and kind of building on that notion of the use of words, you connect your analysis, which would have been characterized yeah, as a history of religion <laughs> traditionally, now as a philological analysis of the use of words which helps us to think these things differently. And an emphasis, you put, you put the emphasis on something that for you seems to be like an, an alternative concept that we could use, and that's where I'm always a, a, a little bit at loss. And you, you speak of doings, yeah. Forms of lives and doings become the key concepts or the key moments and translation starts to play a very important role there right. as not so much translation from another language into our language, but as transla translation as kind of a rearticulation or a, a, even a, a, a new formation of our, our own language in dialogue with that use of, of words. And this is then also what leads you to uh, just to point to that uh, again, to, to a, a, a very dis, uh, a determined critique of the use of religion as an abstraction. Now, I'd like to come back to that in, in a moment as a question also, because the virtue of doing abstraction <laughs> might be something to rethink, nevertheless, in spite of the, 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 the suspicion we, that, that, that we have. So I'm sorry that so this took a little time, but, but uh, maybe you have a way to uh, tell me what I misunderstood or what I... <laughs> no, thank you. Um, I, f I feel enlightened. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's always the case, you know, um, when a, a really a brilliant and serious interlocutor describes my work at any rate, I feel like I understand it better. Um, yeah, so thank you for that, uh, first of all. And I'm, I'm partly uh, I'm going to reformulate some of the points that uh, Niklaus made, just reorganize them or uh, put different emphases. I'm gonna start with the, the, the claim 
um, which will address to a certain extent your, your final question, that within a given Lebensform, right? Um, it's Wittgenstein's term, but it's not at all a, a technical term or a unique term, as, as has been shown. It, um, <clears throat> Wilhelm von Humboldt uh, uses it, right? Um, roughly equivalent to a certain kind of usage of culture in our own parlance. Right? But, but culture is such a problematic term for us because it is so marked in different ways and has been more marked and you know, there's culture and not culture and uh, all the ways that is the idea that it's completely bounded, uh, the anthropological notion that a culture is a single bounded thing in which everything holds together was a very common anthropological notion until quite recently. So, I, I, I don't love using culture, even though that's the word that Wittgenstein used himself when he wrote English to translate Lebensform. Uh, so I'm going to stick with Lebensform, partly or form of life, partly because it's it, it is precisely defamiliarizing and and more more open. Right? Um, so uh, uh, starting uh, starting from that, the the. Um, the essential theoretical claim is that absent a way of talking about it, and I'm not necessarily going to say a single word, uh, but absent a way of talking about it, it is, um, I would say, nearly impossible to imagine a category or a concept as being a, uh, a, an, an active part of a given layman's form. Right? So if, uh, if um, if, 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 as nearly all the languages of the world, until very recently, there is no word that, that is equivalent, and the question of equivalence here is going to be a problem since the word religion is undefinable even in our usage. We, you know, it's one of those things like pornography that we, you know, we, uh, we can't define it, but we, always, we know what it is when it uh, mostly when it knocks us over the head, right? Um, so um, absent in virtually all the languages of the world that I'm, that I'm aware of, a word that even roughly approximates our uh, generalized notion of religion, for which I'll just name a couple of characteristics, that it is a, opposed to something called the secular. In other words, that there are realms of life that um, are religion and other realms of life within the form of life that are not religion. We name them things like law, politics, economics, um, uh, partly for disciplinary reasons, and but more profoundly uh, for the, the way that we that we organize the political lives of our political lives in in modernity in latish capitalism. Um, um, etc., and colonialism. Um, secondly, uh, that that it's yeah that it's opposed to the secular, and that it, uh, it defines one realm of life as opposed to all the other things that we that we do. For the vast majority of cultures of the world world world, uh, there was not there was not such a delineation, not such a split. 
So, of course, somebody would say to me, well, that means there was religion everywhere. So why do I say there wasn't religion? Right? I'm saying if, if religion, as we name it, doesn't pick anything particular out within that cultural system, right? if, if, if we want to say there is religion in everything and, but, and there is no secular, then there is no religion either because it's not, uh, it's not in, uh, in um, opposition to anything. So that, that is um, one of the fundamental, fundamental claims of um, a book that I published with a colleague, that I wrote with a colleague that was published a few years ago called Imagine No Religion. There we focused on, uh, on Greek and Latin, uh, ancient Greek and Latin, uh, trying again um, with um, close attention to the queen of the sciences, philology, of course, uh, to demonstrate uh, that there are no words in each of those languages. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like pleats and pants and um, double-breasted um, jackets. If you stick with something long enough, eventually it comes back into fashion. <laughs> so, uh, um, I've been uh, wearing pleated pants and double-breasted jackets and professing philology for 50 years now. So. <laughs> uh, in fact, I was thinking of calling this book The Consolations of Philology <laughs> at one point. Right. So. Um, yeah, um, so that that's that is one of the big theoretical claims, right? Um, I modify the the rigidity of it because it obviously can't be always and everywhere entirely the case because otherwise it would be impossible to imagine cultural change, right? So somehow before things are delineated or or uh, aggregated and named, something seems needs to have been happening. Um, and uh, so uh, I've found a couple of essays of Quentin Skinner's actually illuminating on this, that the general case, as he says, the general case is that without a word, there isn't a category or a concept, and allowing for marginal um, marginal kinds of anticipations and precursors and things that are, um, that are uh, falling into place. It follows from that that, um, and this um, here I think perhaps this is where we may um, disagree more, that the use of abstractions drawn from our notions of how the world is organized always involves an ideological imposition. Right? Um, now, I'm not going back to some sort of pre-postmodern vision. I was trained by, by German-trained uh, <laughs> philologists who were all born in in the 19th century, although by the time they were teaching me, it was considerably after the 19th century. Uh, um, uh, so I'm not going back to notions of, of the objective truth of Vias Gewesenbach. Obviously, there, uh, 
subject positions and perspectivism and um, all of these um, uh, um, well-developed concepts of the last 30 or 40 years uh, have to be taken into consideration. So it's not that. Nonetheless, a concerted effort, it's, it, it seems to me, a concerted effort to attempt to describe whatever form of life we are studying, and by whatever means we are studying it, whether uh, studying ruins of ancient buildings, reading uh, the extens extensive literary remains of a culture, or conversing with living, living uh, members of that form of life, whatever it is, um, and, and for me, in a sense, anthropology is the, the model of the humanities, right? Um, it, the goal ought to be, I think, to describe in as much detail and as much fineness, as much uh, attention, whatever we can learn and perceive um, about the form of life uh, of the, the group of people that we're studying. Mm -hmm. If we start with, with, with um, abstractions, uh, then we're not frequently not going to be able to see um, the, the layman's form in that kind of a detail. Let me just throw out one example. Um, Josephus, my current uh, paramour, uh, um, uh, writes in one place that when the Jews got together, or the Judeans uh, got together in the temple for the Pentecost festival, that while they were there under cover of the festival, uh, they discussed, began planning the revolt, the great revolt against Rome. Right? As far as I can tell, scholars who talk about this come in two categories. The ones who don't like the Jews say, ah, look how incredibly devious and hypocritical those Jews are. They pretend that they're doing something religious, <laughs> but really they were doing something political, right? <laughs> those who are friendlier to the Jews, mostly Jews, <laughs> say, look how clever and wily those Jews were. They tricked the Romans because when they were ostensibly doing something religious, they were really doing something political, planning a revolt. Now, I submit to you that there is not a shred of evidence that those Judeans would have seen sacrificing in the temple or planning a revolt to get out from under the yoke of Rome as being belonging to two separate spheres, two separate... Uh, axiological realms, uh, or even two different uh, uh, sets of, um, of, of doings. Um, so that, uh, that's the kind of thing that I hope when we um, clear aside these abstractions, um, we can begin to see. Um, now, uh, this, this is an, if, if, if you wish to know who the 
bête noire, as it were, of uh, this, the previous book, Imagine a Religion, and this book, it's J.Z. Smith, Jonathan Z. Smith, uh, at Chicago. And I say without any um, irony and without any sense that I might be um, misleading or lying, I have enormous respect for him as a scholar, and I like him as a person, and this has nothing to do with it. But I think that he's got the project exactly upside down when he speaks about reducing the unknown to the known, right? That is how he describes the project. So, and, and, and uh, for him, comparison is only via abstraction, right? So I have to abstract something from what I know, our culture, call it religion, then I have to abstract that from whatever a culture, cultural form I'm studying, I'm studying, and then I've got two objects that I can compare, right? For him, religion, for instance, is precisely of the same nature as language, right? We compare languages so we can compare religions, right? Uh, by, that, by that token, I would suggest we can compare opera. You know, let's uh, have a look at ancient Akkadian opera, uh, since uh, um, it's also uh, an abstraction, right? From a, uh, but can I just intervene yeah, sure, here for please. a moment? So, um, uh, so the, I, I think I, I, I agree with you on on all on all these points, and it is. I think it's a fascinating point that we inhabit in that regard, because you could say, obviously, we can't recognize the in episteme we inhabit. But we all feel uncomfortable at this point to work with that abstraction religion for several reasons. Yeah, the one, the first one that it ignores actually the practice aspect. Yeah, it's not its practices. It's not beliefs in most cases. Then, uh, for, because of the fact that it is a, a colonial imposition, we could say in modernity, and that it goes hand in hand with a fantasy of secularism in certain instances, or at least along these negotiations, and that we need to think it differently. And, so I, uh, and, uh, or, and, and get rid of the term, as, as, you, as, as you suggest. Now, the, I actually find in your contribution, there, there, is, there is something that both articulates that epistemological moment that we inhabit, where we see the term as highly problematic and not practicable along these lines that the Smith, for example, establishes. But then at the same time, you, you do contribute something that pushes beyond that, beyond that moment, I find. And that's where, uh, where this, I mean, the philology is now in, the, in, the, in this room, very prominently there. Uh, but it's it's a kind of a practice of thinking that you are asking for, that that would be philologically informed yeah. more than right. it it used to acknowledge that. Yeah. It has a little bit to do for me at at some point, although it it is different from it when in the history of philosophy. Uh, the, the rediscovery yeah, with Ado and then Foucault and uh, Ado mainly the rediscovery yeah, that philosophy is a practice of thought and life, right. and 
it is, but it is also more than that because it is about religion, which as a term you see as an imposition. Now, the, I'd, I'd like you to maybe, maybe you could say a few more words here where you, where you see this, because we still have, we think about religious studies curriculum. What should be a religious, I mean, the religious studies department? Yeah, did we, did what there, should there, be, if you ask me what no, should be in religious I, studies departments, there. it's critiques of the notion of religion. <laughs> but that, isn't that exactly that, you see, for me, I also grew up in, and you must share that too. When I, when I say the virtue of abstraction, when, when I grew up in a Catholic context and so on, being able to identify religion abstractly in a Marxist way was an important moment for, and many would still share that, for a liberating thought. So, so there, that, that's, what, that's what I meant there. That, so we can't give up on that totally. So we have to keep that a little bit... No, actually, I, I'm not resisting the use of the term religion where it applies culturally, right? As problematic as it is, uh, uh, already in 1910, somebody wrote an article on 55 definitions of religion. And, uh, <laughs> and there's, there's a, you know, a cottage industry of defining religion. Every, every year, two or three people get tenure with a book uh, <laughs> on uh, 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 redefining religion, right? <laughs> So um, uh, uh, so there's, there is something going on, you know, in modernity that, that is worth talking about, absolutely. And the, po the politics of religion as uh, a tool of colonialism is also, uh, mm -hmm. has, to be, has to be talked about. I mean, the, these sort of archetypical conversations between the Western uh, scholar who comes to India uh, in the, sometime in the 18th century, and says to to the pundit, "So, how do you say religion in Sanskrit?" Right? The answer is, "We don't." No, no, you must. I mean, <laughs> Hinduism is, after all, a religion, right? Indians didn't know that until the English <laughs> told them that. They thought Hinduism just meant what Indians do, right? <laughs> and being Indian. Um, uh, one of the more appalling moments in my life at Berkeley was when certain figures to be unnamed circulated uh, a, a, a proposal for a project that, as far as I can see, thank God, never took place, uh, in which they claimed that Hinduism, and they weren't, they weren't Indologists, this was not at all, you know, um, Un, 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 underemployed scholars of Soviet Russia <laughs> who needed something else to do, as far as I can see, uh, promulgated a document in which they said Hinduism is the oldest religion on earth. Right? As if uh, none of the critical scholarship in, in religious studies has been taking place. So eventually, so back to our pundit. He says, well, we don't say, we don't have a name for religion gets pushed and pushed and pushed and says, okay, dharma, right? Western scholar writes in his uh, um, notebook, I have found the Sanskrit word or the Hindi word for religion, it's dharma, and from then on, dharma gets translated as religion, and the entire Indian cultural world has been transformed initially in the eyes of Westerners, and then, because of the reflex of effects of colonialism, 
ultimately, uh, um, uh, we can see some of the um, um, effects even on Indian life uh, till now. Right? I don't want to blame all of it entirely on my uh, Western um, um, colonialist uh, intellectual, but I think that that is certainly uh, part of it. Um, so that uh, so I, I really think as a matter of of ascesis, right? as a matter of 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 a kind of um, intellectual energy and rigor, avoiding avoiding abstractions. We may very well build up categories um, empirically, but uh, uh, through detailed uh, research. Actually, I'd hope we would have some kind of generalizations or something to, to say at some point. But um, I don't think that uh, we're anywhere near that. Um, and what we need is more philology or more ethnography um, uh, from this. Uh, uh, um, and it, it, it really opens up a, a field what I, I found also fascinating in, in the book, also in its own kind of probing efforts with the, in late antiquity, with medieval Yiddish, with the kind of German moments of modernity and the term of Judentum, that, that something I, I find very convincing is that the, the kind of the particularity of that textual work, which does unlock so to speak, worlds yeah. from, from within and, and, and addresses time and again questions of translation as questions that are very fundamental there in how we can articulate this. Because it's not just, a, it's not just an intercultural issue or whatever you want to call it along these lines, but it's, it's also the, the, the work of the historian. And the historical work, or for me, somebody reading medieval text, 13th century text, is 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 in a similar way challenging, yeah. and and and. Uh, but there's a very you you said I mean, you, your emphasis on anthropological or I mean, there's there's a in the last sentence maybe I just read that, I mean, it expands our sense of the myriad forms of life. Uh, that humans have produced and has the potential to render the imagined potentialities of our own collective human lives immeasurably richer as well. Uh, in investigating different languages, we investigate different forms of life and imagine different possibilities, which now sounds, when you just read this, as, a, as I would call it, a kind of an Auerbachian humanist. Mm. <laughs> project because it resonates with sentences in in our book, but in its specificity, then it is very much, uh, an, let's put it that way, in, an inspirational turn towards a, a kind of a different type also of textual and hermeneutic engagement, and in that sense also a critique of this. Ignatius, early Christian, strong distinction between these exegetical positions. It really opens up, uh, also theologically now speaking, uh, 
a, a different type of conversation. That's collateral damage. <laughs> but, <laughs> you don't really want to be a humanist. A lot I certainly lines. don't want to be a th but theologian. <laughs> you can't <laughs> um, It's a good humanist. Right. <laughs> uh, so I'm just going to make one more point, and then I think yeah. I would like to have leave some time for uh, some conversation, because I haven't spoken about Judaism very much. Oh, yeah. You it doesn't exist. It's not because I, it's not because I, right? Yeah, well. Um, the so, nice thing, I have to say that, just sorry. I mean, the, those of you who have read the David Nirenberg's book, mm -hmm. yeah, the, 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 and I don't say it as a joke, it sounds like, but it's what he identifies as anti-Judaism is actually after reading your book, that's what Judaism is. Exactly. Yeah, as a no, yeah, I, I, I even say that. I even say that. That anti-Judaism is Judaism, right? Uh, or Judaism is right. anti-Judaism. <laughs> uh, because um, after all the philology is said and done, as uh, Niklaus pointed out, it turns out that in no language used by Jews on a regular basis, whether it's uh, Judeo-Arabic, Yiddish, um, the language that I called Judeo-Hebrew, as opposed to you know, modern uh, Israeli, um, Judeo-Greek, um, and Judeo-Romance. Now, I don't treat all the languages, Jewish languages in the world. I stretch myself by working with Arabic, um, and I think, I, you know, I check with experts, and I think, uh, but I don't know Judeo-Tajik or uh, uh, Judeo-Tocharian or uh, all the Jewish languages, but I've, a fairly representative sample of the most important and widely used Jewish languages, there is no word Again, before modernity, that means Judaism, the religion. It is impossible to say, and therefore I think impossible to think, in any Jewish language before the 18th century, a sentence like, I am a German of the Jewish faith. Mm. Right? Um, this becomes possible in the wake of the work of Moses Mendelssohn and uh, his fellows who insisted that the Jews of German-speaking lands need to uh, move from speaking Judeo-German, the language that we call today Western Yiddish, right, and speak Standard German. Now, Standard German has a whole range of semantic values that Judeo-German didn't have. The word Judentum does not exist in Judeo-German. But once Jews start speaking standard German, they import a whole realm of Christian conceptual apparatuses, including Judentum, and the semantics of Judentum is itself a very complicated term, which I treat very briefly in this fairly uh, slim book, that enables a cultural shift of 
enormous import. And I'm not here to judge that shift. Right? I'm not here to judge that shift. It obviously did uh, uh, lots of good work for Jews in, in, uh, in many ways. I'm not saying that Jews were just passive um, you know, non-actors uh, with regard to this shift, but it produces inter alia the kinds of notions that, uh, that Jewishness is and only is membership in a faith or a religion, right? And you can, you can see sermons from the uh, uh, German rabbis of the 19th century, American rabbis um, also in the late 19th and early 20th century in which this claim is made over and over again. We are, we are Germans and nothing but Germans. We are Americans and nothing but Americans. And nothing ties us to other Jews other than the sort of things that tie Lutherans in Scandinavia to Lutherans in, uh, in Slovakia to Lutherans in, in Germany. That is, uh, a certain uh, faith commitments. Of course, while we're moving in that direction, practice, that is the whole way of life, what you eat, when you eat, uh, uh, what you sing, what you dance, what you do at a wedding. Uh, I'm, not even, I'm not talking now about Jewish law. I'm talking about the whole, the whole form of life of, of Jewishness, which we call Yiddishkeit, right? Yiddishkeit, or Jewishness, gets uh, simply uh, eradicated. And now, as, um, as um, Weinreich, the father, Max Weinreich, uh, puts it, being Jewish as opposed to being Christian means which kind of a church do you go to? A church called a church or a church called a synagogue, whether you do it on Sunday or you do it on, uh, on Saturday. Um, and I'll just finish by saying, I don't want to reveal my affect here at all, but that, that whole tendency in the sermons gets... Uh, ends up being extremely triumphalist, right? What we are here for is to be a light unto the nations because of our wonderful ethics that were given to us by the prophets and none of that accretion of all that uh, oriental stuff. They use that term over and over again and uh, those ancient uh, uh, absurd and bizarre practices, but just the uh, prophetic uh, uh, universalism which comes down to second Isaiah, essentially. That's where you find prophetic universalism. And it consists of a, a, an eschaton in which everybody in the world is going to come and bow down to the God of Israel in Jerusalem. Right? Uh, with universalism like that, I think I would prefer um, particularism. <laughs> so, okay, I'm going to stop there. I, 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 I could keep talking for hours, but it, it wouldn't be no. fair to you. Yeah, yeah. there's, uh, there's time for questions. I think there's a microphone here, and we were admonished to use the microphone, <laughs> even if you're...
Daniel, it's always enormously provocative. You've given us uh, a narrative, a meta-narrative of an organic form of life, undifferentiated, concrete, which then uh, devolves into one that is basically differentiated and abstract. It's a big narrative. What I found fascinating is you begin it not with modernity, but with the Christian, uh, in a way, transformation of uh, praxis to doxa. And right. uh, that's a very, very interesting move in the larger argument. I wondered, however, how you accommodate the earlier, um, uh, let's say, internal contestation within the proto-Jewish tradition, let's say, that produces monotheism. I mean, monotheism, as Osman and other people tell us, emerges in a context uh, of a polytheism, which becomes, in a way, abjected as uh, a false religion, as an idolatrous religion. And the anxiety of the return of pagan or idolatrous or polytheistic uh, non-monotheism is evidenced in the Hebrew Bible and, of course, Moses and Aaron's uh, great battle over a golden calf. So, in other words, my point would be there never was a moment of unified absolutely undifferentiated, absolutely concrete orthopraxis, but rather from the get-go, there's always an internal right. uh, other, uh, which produces a kind of differentiation. Yeah. And monotheism itself, we might say, is the great proto-abstraction. I, I, I couldn't agree more that there was never a moment in which there was monolithic orthopraxis, of course, right? There are uh, uh, multiple variations within, within Jewish doings, uh, both chronological, historical, even at the same time. Uh, there, there are contests about different ways of doing things. Monotheism, um, I'm going to be provocative again, but not on purpose, just, <laughs> just because this is really the way I see things, was more or less invented by Immanuel Kant. <laughs> in the wake of serious uh, Islamic uh, theologians, uh, correct me, uh, anyone who knows, if, I'm, if, if I've got uh, Islam wrong, it's a construct, uh, it's a construct of um, another abstraction, as you say, the ultimate abstraction, but uh, very much um, also, I, I think, uh, a... Um, Anachronistic one, vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis, uh, vis uh, certainly the Hebrew Bible, and even more so, perhaps, uh, uh, the Second Temple period and late antiquity, where there are a plethora of Jewish intermediaries, minor divinities, uh, uh, I would call them. Um, and the way you preserve monotheism, you say, well, none of them are gods, right? They're angels or uh, you know, divine powers, but they're not, they're not gods. Um, in earlier work, I think I've cited sufficient evidence that uh, for many Jews, stroke Judeans, they were imagined as gods. You know, uh, perhaps Terry Pratchett's kinds of, kinds of gods, you know, little, little gods, right? What's the name of his book? Little Gods, I think. Uh, small Gods. Terry Pratchett wrote a book called Small Gods. Um, yeah. But uh, so that the, the whole notion of a single divine figure who is the, the only 
creator, the only uh, uh, god in the world, is, is itself a historical product. And um, <coughs> if, if I go too far in saying Immanuel Kant, certainly uh, a, precipitate, a precipitation out of medieval um, Aristotelian uh, philosophy as we find it both in um, Jewish and mm. uh, Muslim and, for that matter, Christian scholastic. Uh, so so th th that, that story itself is one that I... Why all the tourists with the golden calf? Because that, that was an idol. There's a difference, right? Because that, no, because they were worshiping the they were worshiping the right God, but in the wrong way, right? And, you know, it, it, you, 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 right? so uh, um, in, that's that's uh, uh, where is it? The um, um, the the famous question of what superstitio is, right? And who was it who said uh, it might have been, might be Cicero? I'm looking with terror uh, at my friend Eric Gruen uh, in case I'm just making an absolute cock up of this. Um, <laughs> it, it said that superstitio is not worship of the wrong gods, but it's worship of the right gods in the wrong way. Right. So uh, I think that the the calf. The question of the calf-shaped god, uh, who is uh, the form that the that the god took in the north, right? The, the same god with the same name. That that's what's being contested there, and uh, and not the question of of uh, you know certainly not the abstract philosophical question of monotheism or non-monotheism. So we're again at the exegetical moment here. And in that situation, there's a, yeah. Thank you, Daniel, for this, uh, as always, provocative talk. Um, you are obviously allergic to abstraction. I am. <laughs> also allergic to religion, the term. Yes. And now I see you are allergic to the term Judaism as well. Yes. <laughs> now, let me just ask, can we converse without abstraction? Can we engage in analysis without trying to pull these threads together in some form of an expression that makes sense as a collective, even if it's a complicated one? No, it's, that's an, Let me just yeah. point on this. Um, Judaism, you have deconstructed very, very well, does not refer to what we normally think of as a faith or a belief. That's absolutely clear. But the term was used could be used, I think, and was used in some sense other than religion or faith or belief. And I think used in a way which you would be perfectly comfortable with, namely a kind of bundle of practices, customs, traditions, adherence to past 
mm -hmm. uh, uh, customs and so on. When it was used, as you know very well, of course, in 2nd Maccabees, long before uh, yeah. the period where you think it, it uh, was created by the Christians, or, uh, I'm exaggerating here, I know you don't think it was created by them, but it was used, and it's been misunderstood, as you and I think uh, right. would certainly agree, but misunderstood at the time, or sub by subsequent scholars, but it was used. It had to mean something. It had to have some resonance. When the Second Maccabees used the term Judaismos, right. it had to have, even in your sense, which I perfectly concur with, it is a collection of traditions, practices, uh, previous uh, Lebensform. Okay, yeah. Lebensform is abstraction as well. So maybe there should be some limit to your yeah. allergies. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it, no it, it's, all, it's only my fault that you haven't read yeah. my 10-page discussion of, it, it of, very... of Judaismus in, in, two, in two Maccabees. But so let me just very quickly say, it's my fault because I promised you a copy of the book and I didn't have copies and I haven't given it to you yet. <laughs> That's why it's my fault. Uh, but uh, uh, first of all, I want to dispel the opinion uh, or the pos possible suggestion that I simply didn't know that or ignored that or something. <laughs> uh, uh, I know you didn't intend to say that. But so, when uh, I both know. Right, I know. So uh, uh, just, just real quick. If Judaismus was the generally known name for Jewish doings or the, the Jewish form of life, how come it only occurs in one text, right? In one text, and four Maccabees as well, but I mean, that's just copying from two Maccabees. Uh, it, no, I mean, this is well known. That's not, that's not something I'm, I'm saying. And in no other Jewish-Greek writing. How come Josephus, who writes against Apion, Right? He's writing a book in defense of whatever uh, of the nomos of, of the Torah. Never finds occasion to use the word Judaismus. How come Philo? Right, hundreds and hundreds of pages talking about what we might be tempted to call Judaism. Never finds occasion to use the word. It suggests to me, as it suggested to my friend Steve Mason, with whom I sometimes disagree, but more often agree, that this is a very specialized usage in a very particular political context. Um, and I suggest that uh, in, in, in the book, I'm not saying because I suggest, therefore it's uh, um, the truth, right? <laughs> but I suggest and I argue and cite evidence that uh, it is formed there in back formation from Hellenismos, mm -hmm. as you and I both know, a fairly common Greek word, or, uh, um, such, or words referring to Scythianizing or Medizing, <laughs> acting like a Persian, and it simply means acting like a Judean, right? Acting like a Judean is not an abstraction. It's a verbal noun 
comes from Yudayitzain to act to act like a and and there are I'm told by Amir who wrote about this Yoshua Amir that there are a thousand examples of this uh, of form in ancient Greek, uh, including such things as um, um, Aristophano Euripides, which means acting like Aristophanes and Euripides, right? <laughs> Uh, so uh, that's actually a, an actually a, t a tested form. Medizing has nothing to do with a religion, and I think uh, neither does Judaizing, which is the correct translation for Judaismos. That's my opinion. I've, I've, I've cited evidence. I've discussed it. I've discussed the problems with that argument also, and um, I hope I'm right. <laughs> Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in this series.